Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Kenya's biggest conversation that's broadcast live every weekday morning from 6 to 10 a.m. on Spice FM. Hit subscribe for more thought-provoking conversations with your hosts Eric Latif, Ndu Oko and C.T. Muga and who's who of an eclectic mix of guests from the world of politics, policy, business and culture. This is a Situation Room podcast. Enjoy. We want to talk about the position of women in law, in various leadership positions in law, whether it's the bench, the bar, academia, how are they doing? Have we seen an improvement in this? Uh, there's a new report that was released recently, actually I think it was launched yesterday, and the founder and executive director of the Institute for African Women in Law, Professor Jaffa Dawuni, is with us in the studio. We welcome her. Professor Dawoni, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Kenya's Biggest Conversation. Thank you. Good glad to have to you here. on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You call yourself a feminist womanist. Is there a distinction between the two? There is some level of um, epistemological distinction in our tribe. And I try not to use, <laughs> and I try not to throw too many of those words here. Uh, and that for some people, you know, the feminist movement, it's really at the core about women's equality and equality in society but if you look at it it's gone through different waves so for example most feminists in the united states where i teach and live we have the distinction between white feminists black feminists african-american feminists mm. and then of course we have african feminists asian feminists you go it's really kind of morphed into different and there's been some distinctions intentions where some people feel that feminism has been taken over by white feminists so the word feminist denotes white feminism and others who are black or brown bodies say where are we featuring in this discourse so within the african-american context they developed the idea of womanism to bring it closer home to the African roots of what it means to be a woman. So mm. Alice Walker, for example, has been credited highly with this idea of womanism, which looks more from the communal perspective, the non the individual perspective. So that's where those distinctions come. And I think I straddle both. Okay. All right. You founded the Institute for African Women in Law. Uh, what's it about? Yeah, so that was founded in 2015. And I would say it was born out of my frustration as a scholar uh, because I qualified as a lawyer in Ghana. I did my PhD in political science at Georgia State in Atlanta, Georgia. So once you finish your PhD, you're thinking, what's going to be my research focus? I could do something in law. I could do something in international development, which was my master's. And I could also do something in politics. And I decided after five years of law school, I wasn't going to throw that away. So I wanted to bridge the gap between politics and um, law and most importantly, my interest in women and gender issues. And I decided to start researching on women in law. I noted that as I did more research, I couldn't find a lot that had been written. So I said to myself, if nobody's writing it or nobody's writing it consistently, then that means there's a problem. There's a gap. Mm. I'm a problem solver, so I decided to solve that problem. So 2016, I edited my first book on women in, in gender in the judiciary in Africa. And I'll say it's the first ever book to be written on women judges in Africa. So that was 2016, and I followed up soon after that with a second book, a third and a fourth book. So that 
passion for research um, led me to create an organization that would conduct research on women in law, but also importantly, look at the gaps that we are finding in the research and provide training and other capacity enhancement. So that's how the Institute was formed and that's where we are today. Mm. By the time somebody's going into research, there's a problem, isn't it? That something you want to find out about or something that we want to then be able to fix as a result of that research. So uh, you talk about gaps. What are these problems or what are these gaps then that would lead to research uh, on women in leadership or women in law, women on the bench in Africa? Yeah, good point. So yeah, there's always that issue that there's a problem to be fixed or there's a question to be answered. The good thing is that sometimes it's not a problem. It's just a matter of really understanding deeper and maybe finding alternatives or finding solutions. So for me, the problem in this case, and uh, looking at it from a research perspective, the problem statement was for me, where are the African women in law? I knew I was one of them. I knew there were many women across Ghana, across the continent, but we couldn't find that. So my first book, if you look at agenda in the judiciary, was what I call painting the landscape or trying to understand the landscape of, okay, who is a judge? How do they become a judge? What do they do when they get into the judiciary? What are the problems they face? What are the contributions they are making? Even though it was more of a problem with the lack of knowledge, it wasn't a problem with the fact that women were necessarily having too many problems mm -hmm. given and this is something we'll talk about maybe in a few more minutes is that we see that across the continent of africa women have entered the legal professions broadly at the judiciary the bench and the bar but they still have challenges they face and these are the challenges that need to be highlighted but most importantly i'm all about celebration because growing up if i can segue very quickly I never kind of, I, law wasn't something I wanted to do. I wanted to be an architect, but I couldn't draw a straight line. People looked at me and thought, you should be a teacher. You, you're gentle, you're kind. People thought you should be a nurse because you, you, you're just nice. People will get well when they see, I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I always say that this is where it gets gendered because nobody ever told me be a doctor. It was a nurse. And we heard this a lot yesterday during the launch where the pioneer women judges who were in the room, Justice Effie, Justice Alot, and even CJ herself and Chief Justice Comey talked about how they were told to be a nurse or a teacher or something else. So why wasn't I told to be a doctor? Anyway, I don't like blood. I don't like chemistry and physics. So I could never have been a doctor. But I walked into a salon in Ghana one time. I saw a magazine that was just lying there. And I was just, I was really young, 18. And I looked in there and I saw a young woman from the United States who was at that time 19 years old. She had a PhD, she had a law degree and I said I want to be like her. I cut out the picture out of the magazine and to date I have it. Over 30 years I still have that picture and that inspired me. So for me being a lawyer was the first step to figuring out how can we solve problems and if I wasn't going to go to the courtroom to solve the problems that my cases were um, going to be about then I wanted to be in the classroom furthering the knowledge and most importantly also advancing knowledge and that's where i got into the field hmm. what would you say okay so the, in terms of representation in terms of women then being in these fields where i mean this particular field we know that they're there would you say that today um, on the continent even as you sat amongst these uh, powerful women in that launch yesterday would you say that the representation or the entrenchment to guarantee that women are in these positions has improved over time 30 years ago when you saw that and then practicing over time and then coming in today would you say that it has improved is there now an embracing of 
a culture then that admits women mm -hmm. into these circles. Absolutely. And I'll give Kenya as an example. So one thing I always like to say when I'm doing my research, my speaking engagement is that Africa is a continent. It is not a country. Don't expect me to come <laughs> here and tell you Africa. So I have developed the habit of saying across Africa. Mm. I like to write and say across Africa to show the expanse of this huge heterogeneous continent. And so for that reason, I tell people it's over a billion people and counting, thousands of cultures, thousands of languages, if not in the millions. Mm. So I always like to nuance my explanations and examples. So back to your question, across the continent, and I tell people I'm not going to come and tell you I'm an expert on Africa. If anybody tells you they are, tell them they're a liar because you're talking about 54 nation states. They cannot possibly know everything. <laughs> so I'm very um, proud to say that and, 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 and shy away from saying I'm an expert on Africa. However, given the work I have done across different countries and I'm a comparativist, I go to the field, I do research, so I'm on the ground and learning. And given what I've been also um, studied from other places I'm yet to visit, there has been progress in many places across the continent. Mm. You find out that yes, 30 years ago compared to now, there's been a lot of shifts. And so we're getting more women getting into law school, getting into the different branches of the profession. The numbers are increasing in some countries and not in others. In one country, you might find out the numbers may be increasing in the number of women in the judiciary, but not so much in the number of women in the academy. Another thing is the distinction between the representation in numbers versus the representation in leadership. So let me take Kenya as an example. The research we have done shows, of course, the judiciary of Kenya has about 50% women judges generally. What distinguishes Kenya from other places is that Kenya also has almost 50 or more percent of women in leadership. So the representation, what we call the symbolic representation, is kind of equal to the leadership representation. But that is not the case in other countries. Mm -hmm. Something I'd like to ask. You alluded to a distinction in feminism based on the geographical area that one comes from. So let me ask the question. Asia, the Western world, Africa, when you look at this definition of feminism, where do they converge? Where do they differ? Yeah, that's a deep question. So I think that convergence would be maybe to a large extent that we all are focused on the equality of women. Mm. So at the basic level is the idea of fighting for and advancing women's equality across board. But it's also different because feminism is based on lived experiences. And one of the things you find with knowledge production, like it or not, that knowledge production is highly regulated by power. So what we know as knowledge systems, and you may have heard about this within the context of the um, African knowledge systems, is what we have this movement of decolonizing knowledge. We've been made for many years to believe that who we are, what we are, what our systems are, how we operate, is objective, it's, it's based on research. But we are now deconstructing to realize that those who created those knowledge systems had power. They described, created these systems that we use to describe ourselves. And so we have to deconstruct that knowledge. So even that with feminism, in as much as we're advocating for equality, you also find that it's based on power structures. And that is where women from the continent of Africa, women from Latin America or Asia, stepping back and looking at this thing we've painted called feminism and asking, it doesn't really look like me. <laughs> that is not my lived experience. Mm. Why should I be told that I should be a certain uh, way of being in order to be considered a woman, uh, to be considered a feminist? 
so it's really constant shifts and that has taken place even at the global level if you're looking at the women uh, meetings convened by the un which one of them was held in nairobi i think in 1975 or 85 i always forget the year i think the nairobi conference was 85 you know it started off in mexico nairobi copenhagen ended up in beijing there were many tensions with the women when they met mm. because some groups of women wanted to take over the agenda <laughs> some groups of women yes some groups of women mm. and i uh, think you want me to go deeper into mm. that <laughs> that's, that's, that's why there was silence so yes. yeah. for Pause, yeah. take a deep breath and then continue <laughs> yes. so some groups of women and i'll be very open about this it's that it was the what we classify i think back to your question about geography yes is that western feminists took over the agenda and you will talk to people who have been to these meetings and it was really a silencing and erasure of the other women so quote-unquote other is another word we use in the decolonized uh, knowledge systems feminist systems who is the other and there's a very powerful article that was written by an indian feminist scholar mohanti chandra talpit who talks about under western eyes and how western knowledge systems and knowledge ways of being have looked at non-western women through the lens of the Western woman. And so we need to constantly question and push back those um, knowledge systems that authorize mm. non-white women. So does that mean then the demands that are made of feminism then would be split depending on where you come from or where you are culturally domiciled? Because we're saying what the demands of feminism would be from the Western world. Now, very practically at what you've talked about here, the representation of women in government, the representation of women in leadership, that perhaps the demands of Western women in the same f feminism would be different from the demands of women in Africa when it comes to leadership, when it comes to representation, when it comes to government, they would be different based on what you're saying, if we're looked at in a different lens, mm -hmm. that if I'm putting words in your mouth, please stop me. Are you also saying then that if we looked at it as one umbrella, then it is impossible to say that everybody can operate under the same umbrella of feminism based on the fact that culturally women are different glo from a global point of view? Yeah. No, you're right. I think the simple answer is yes, you're right. Mm. Idea the reason for the pushback is because we for many years have been told to operate at a certain globalized norm, globalized level. Then you sit back and you ask yourself, one, who created this global system? Who fits into this global system? Who has a voice at this global table? And that is when you begin to see that the voices of the women from places outside of the Western systems were not part of the process of creating this global standards, global norms. So within the feminist movement, there was this idea of sisterhood is global, which is great. Yeah, we are all women. We are all struggling to a large extent the, more, the same struggles. So it's a global movement. But then you dig deeper and you realize, that, okay, if you look at the layers of oppression, the layers of power hierarchies, we all may be women facing different things. But for example, the woman in any country across Africa is not just dealing with they are domestic patriarchy they are dealing with what we also call global patriarchy global capitalist patriarchy global imperialism so you find that there are layers upon which the woman in the non-western system would be facing that they in the western systems may not that is not to say they don't have problems they do have their specific problems but we cannot use one capital to fit all so coming back to my research um, i propounded a theory and still theorizing and an article i think in a book chapter 
out in 2019, which I called matrilegal feminism, right? So this is an issue with that. Feminism keeps popping up in different ways. We have postmodern feminists, dominance feminists, Western feminists, you know, all those. But it's important to keep pushing back acknowledgements. And so I propounded this idea of matrilegal feminism. And for me, it's because once again, I am having to do research. I am having to apply the theoretical lens that I see as not fitting the explanation of the lived experiences of the African woman in law. I could apply any other theory to it. Yes, it may explain it to some extent, but the idea of knowledge production is to build up, to deconstruct, to reconstruct, and then to make things better. So I looked at this idea of African systems where we have matriarchy, which is not something that most Western feminists or um, societies know about. We know patriarchy, right? The man in control. But within Africa, we have pockets of different cultures that practice patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And so if you go back into our historical past, you know, there's a lot been written about pre colonial African system, the colonial period and the post-colonial and whichever phase we are in today. I think that the idea of matriarchy, even if it is not dominant in all societies across Africa, still has a value to play in how we recognize women, how we recognize women's leadership. Now, very quickly, within African systems, we know communities who, that have women as chiefs. Yeah. We know communities that have women as queens. Yeah. They are decision makers. We know African systems that have had women as leaders of armies fighting in war. We know African systems that had and still have women as religious leaders. Now, if you look at religious leadership, the highest, what is called the priestess or other role, you don't see that in, let's say, Catholicism, where the Pope and the, the top people are men. So what is it about African systems that have been erased, that were reconstructed by Western systems, that tell us that the only way you can be, your being, is to be like the Western systems. Mm. And that is where we need to deconstruct and reconstruct. And that is where I came up with this idea of matrilegal feminism, putting together matriarchy, legal, and feminism to explain, once again, to your question, why is it that across the continent of Africa, despite the fact that most African countries gained independence in the late 50s, you know, starting in Ghana and then up onto the 60s. But we have done much better in getting women into leadership in judicial positions. Take, for example, quickly, Great Britain colonized Kenya. Well, we call it settler colony, if you mm. want. It colonized Ghana, it colonized Nigeria. But these countries have put women as Supreme Court presidents of the Supreme Court or chief justices before the, the UK. UK is yet to do that. Yeah. Ghana has had two women chief justices. Nigeria has had one. Kenya has your first one. And of course, before the first one, you had two women deputy chief justices. So what is it about African systems that despite the fact that we entered the game late, we've been able to promote and push women into leadership? And that's something that we need to explore. Actually, they're just asking, did we enter the game late? Or were we there from the very beginning? We just are retracing our own roots. Well, we are very fast learners. Yeah. What we've done yeah. is we've understood where these fellows purpose to go and we've overtaken them. Yeah, we we realize <laughs> these fellows aren't going at the pace we'd like to. Yeah. So, so we've, jump there faster. We've, we've hastened the whole process. <laughs> <laughs> time for that break. It's half past eight. Time for a minute made break. This is the Situation Room. The only way to start your day. Found an executive director of the Institute for African Women in Law. Tell us about this research that you conducted, the Women in Law and Leadership. Yeah, this is a four-nation research that we've been conducting for the past year and more. And it's on <clears throat> Nigeria, South Africa, Senegal and Kenya. The broad idea was to uh, paint a landscape of where women are in law and in leadership. So as I said, there hasn't been consistent research done in this area. And this is uh, comprehensive because it goes deeper. We're not just looking at women's representation in numbers, 
numbers matter but then we we don't want to just count the numbers and think oh we've arrived we have 50 women or 40 women so we are doing good we want to dig deeper to find out what are the real lived experiences of these women in law how do we get more women into leadership and the ultimate question is why do we need more women in leadership and i think that the simple answer is because they have a right to be in leadership if the world is made up of more than 50 percent if african economies are made up of more than 50 percent of women isn't it fair and justified that they should be equally represented in leadership um, and I would like to preface that when we're looking at women in leadership or equal equal and equitable representation of women in leadership it's not about some people look at it and think well it means that women are taking over now I can respond quickly and say if women are taking over then what's wrong with that mm. if men have been on the ground but for me I always build on the system once again of rooting my knowledge production in African systems and realize that our communities are based on consensus to a large extent it's based on complementary and so if women are in leadership we bring to the table what women bring we also bring to the table new ways of thinking diverse ways of thinking which traditionally we may not have had because those positions were occupied by men so if we are all together in the boats and bringing the different perspectives i think it strengthens decision making processes it strengthens the policies we bring together and it strengthens the society for the better so that's the reason the ultimate reason why we should have women in leadership and the also simple reason they have a right to be there. Now we find out that within the four countries we've studied, we looked at women as lawyers, women as judges, and women as um, professors or academics. Their findings are very diverse. In some countries, we've seen progress. For example, in Kenya, we have a very diverse judiciary in terms of um, women's representation, over 50% inching up in, in the number of women represented and of course in leadership. And in the bar in Kenya, which is a, the, the lawyers, we also have about 42 to 45% of women as lawyers but the leadership doesn't represent so for example in the history of kenya you've had only one woman who was ever the chairperson of the law society of kenya mm -hmm. ambassador rachel Omamo. and currently based on our research counts you've had three women who have been vice chairs now that is not a good representation of the 40 to 45 percent of women represented at the bar or the law society so more work needs to be done we also looked in this research at the women women's representation at the office of the attorney general and the office of the public prosecutor no woman has ever been attorney general in in kenya and so if you look at the academy we also realize that in as much as more women are getting into the academy as law professors or lecturers the numbers of women who have risen up to the level of being deans is very low based on the research we did and we looked at just about four universities of the public and private it's only 80 percent 18 percent that have been deans so you find out yeah the, the judiciary progress has been made but then the bar and the academy still more work needs to be done. Do we see a situation where in your research you determined whether it is that women present themselves uh, to be considered for these leadership positions or is it that they shy away from presenting themselves and if so if you're talking about equitability based on capability is it then now a discussion that perhaps goes to should we say, the Western concept of the role of women. I say this because you brought in the issue of women taking over. The position of women in leadership in a traditional African context was always then, it was never seen as though they were taking over. Not really. You're right. So I think this is where the deconstruction of our mindsets needs to take place. Because in as much as most of us think we are, we are still kind of living within the African concepts and ways of being, it's not. Yeah. We were very much, I mean, imagine the amount of 
years, 100 or 100 years for countries that were colonized. But we are still in a colonized state in our ways, uh, you know, mindset and other. Some will call it neocolonialism as well as propounded by Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana or other forms of uh, colonization that we're still going through. So some people still operate under this notion of bureaucratic systems. The legal education system was imported into Kenya and other African countries. That is not to say before the colonized uh, systems came, we didn't have ways of adjudication. We did. Right. So we have inherited systems of education that were based on the models that were brought in from whether Britain for most countries or France or other places. And we still operate under those norms that believe that leadership is something reserved for men. So we have to constantly deconstruct this notion of what leadership means and if it's always masculine. So it's something that we need to um, do constantly. So the question about whether women shy away from or if they are capable, once again, because of the traditional notions that, and we can't always say that they were always inherited, in as much as most of these patriarchal norms were inherited from wherever they came from, whether Great Britain or France or the US, it's also that we do also have patriarchy within African systems. Mm. So a combination of both means that once again, the woman in African systems or any other former colonized systems, whether in Latin America or Asia, have a double bind to deal with. You're dealing with your local patriarchal systems, you're dealing with your imported patriarchal systems. So that is where it's a matter of looking into these systems of deconstruction and really Realizing that women do have the capabilities. Like I mentioned earlier, African countries across Africa have led wars, have been leaders in economic production. Women are CEOs. Even if it's a market stall, she Mm. is a CEO of her market stall. Mm. They are producing and contributing to national economy development, but we don't often count their contributions. So we need to look at... What is it that one has in some ways prevented or slowed down women's progression into leadership positions? Mm. And it's a combination of factors. You're right that there's some level in the book and the reports we mentioned the idea of personal agency. Mm. Are you going to push forward? But I would also say within the report, we identify three levels of explanation. Mm -hmm. The individual level, the institutional level, and the structural level. Because of this, we use this theory called intersectionality, which looks at the ways in which women, and this theory was propounded by an African-American, well, broadly, most African-American women scholars, but was really put into knowledge by an African-American social-legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, who has been credited, really, with the idea of intersectionality. Which is to say that within the Afri- African-American context in the U.S., the experiences of the black woman, and she used it based on a particular case that went to court, are not just because she's black, it's also because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. So the idea of gender and her race, race. intersecting mm-hmm. means that she has more barriers to deal with. This concept has been expanded and also looking at issues of, well, it could mean that your race intersects with your gender, which may intersect with your marital status, which may intersect with your age, which may intersect with your religion, Physical which may intersect... It, it goes on. So within the African context, once again, if you're looking at this factor of how intersectionality affects just in this case a woman in the woman in law it means that you're a lawyer you've just been called to the bar that means one you're young mm-hmm. you're dealing with the age a factor mm-hmm. you are probably unmarried you are dealing with that marital or unmarital status mm-hmm. 
and then your gender now within most african systems with maybe exceptions like south africa or a few other places race may not be a factor but ethnicity could be a factor even though i haven't found it to be a strong determinant so these factors combine at the institutional level the structural level and do play a role in impeding the opportunities that are available for women to rise into leadership you know the understanding of what it is that is meant by this simple term leadership and how it plays on to whether it's a political arena or whether it is in civil service or like in your case the practice of law there is a historical bias no, there is a historical thought bias with regards to what women can and cannot do and what men can and cannot do now these processes that you speak of and which you've researched on demystify these things. I have to ask the question, since it's feminism, what's the role of men in all this and where do they fit in? Excellent question. So men have a role to play. I, I have a quote I created that say that if, you know, just to paraphrase, if we are fighting for gender equality without including men, for me, it looks like riding a car on two wheels. <laughs> You can only go so far. You will get there, but it's going to be a tough, a painful process. It's going to be slow. Your wheels are going to be screeching. And by the time you get there, your two tires would be bent over, you know, um, bent, bent out. So that means that we cannot exist without complementarity. And I also have another quote that says that if men, and I'm being careful with not generalizing here because it's not all men, it's not all women. So essentialism must be um, uh, at, at play here. If we take the assumption that men created problems, for women men created gender inequality then shouldn't they be part of the solution because if they are not then you are once again burdening women to deconstruct what they did not construct in the first place so with that thinking in mind men have a role to play in making sure that they also deconstruct some men deconstruct what they understand as women's position in society, women's roles in society. I'm also happy to mention that I have met many men who understand, who have deconstructed their minds, who really never had that problem from get-get-go, whether it's because of their socialization or experiences. And so I always highlight those ones. And so at the Institute, we actually have a program we call the Male Allies. And the Male is actually an acronym. I made it an acronym which means Men Advocates in Law for Equality. So you're a man, you're an advocate in law, whichever position and you are for equality how can you as a man use your position of authority your position of power which is a privilege that you have traditionally had from the day you were born to a large extent how can you use that power how can you use that position of privilege to change systems within the legal profession and broadly in society in order to make it equitable and promote equality for women and so men do have a role to play and we invite all men to be part of it there is a small nuance here and it has to do not well let's for lack of a better word let's call it an ecosystem within which we human beings exist or coexist and then there's this little aspect of coexistence called childbearing and then rearing and then now the biopsychological relationships between men boys and their mothers and how they are brought up again the role because what we're discussing is an eventuality something that we have to deal with on a daily basis but i'm going to the genesis the country that you work and live in, there are many 
articles, there are many publications that have been written about a particular segment of that population, the African-American and the absentee fathers and the effect of this absenteeism as they call it. But if I push the absenteeism aside, would you say that there's a global notion or an acceptable global perspective as to how mothers relate to their sons and how this contributes to this discussion that we're having and which led to the research that you have? Hmm, That's a tough one to deconstruct and so I will bring it closer home to Kenya or to the continent, Africa, Mm. where I'm sitting right now. I don't know. I I don't know if I can say. So if I understand your question right, and let me paraphrase my understanding, you can correct me, that women are the reason why men and boys are the way they are. No. (laughs) Women contribute significantly. You see, if I take the discussion even further, there is a compensatory element to it that that's why I talked about the absenteeism of the relationships that women have with their male partners and how this then reflects on their bringing of their sons. In an African context, let me perhaps give a little, this matter a little more flesh. You'll find a girl child is brought up to be very capable. The things that a girl child can do by the age of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 are a variety. The boy child is disabled. But, but he, yes, he, there's, so again, it's it's upbringing. Are you saying maybe that women who are mothers are enabling or perpetuating this uh, way of being in boys and men, that they have a part to play in how they turn out to be? Thank you so much. And see, this is the benefit of speaking this <laughs> colonizer's language. <laughs> Okay, so if that is what you're saying, uh, thank you, Ndu, for that. I would say no. Yes. Why are you one? Why are we? Mm. You, let me just go there. Mm. Saying mm. that it's the woman's fault, it's the woman's role. And why not the man? So you see, that is where this whole idea of feminism and women's, women's rights come, comes in. Why are we looking at the woman? Who carried that baby for nine months? Did all that breastfeeding for how many months? Took care of that child. Is still taking care of them until the day that day, whenever. Why is that burden of care still on the woman? Why wouldn't we rather reconstruct your question to say the man who is the absentee father is the one that has contributed to this problem that we have? And why we rather saying is a woman? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. her point is an extremely valid one. <laughs> and it's what you call a perspective. Uh. Okay, it's just a change of perspective. But let me now give you an alternate perspective. It is the socialization and the effects of it. Because if one is brought up to conduct themselves or to view that life should be conducted in a certain way, it's how they will conduct themselves. Even when there is no absentee father, the role that women on this continent believe and feel they have towards child upbringing is not a burden. Mm. It's something that they feel they must do. I'm not speaking about something that's theoretical. I'm speaking about the reality of how it happens in stable and it's, and it's not an imposition no it's 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 a responsibility that they take and on. they take even pride in they, yes. this, this so, one yes. so much so that if if it is seen and these are things that i've seen with my eyes mm. prof so much so that if you in some settings if a woman were to see a man god forbid entering into the kitchen and picking up an onion and cutting it it's as though they've been surely yeah yeah masculation has taken place yeah Yeah, and this is the woman who is saying oh my god it can never happen in the kitchen a man no 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 jesus is coming tomorrow (laughs) 
You're right. And I think that brings to the point the word you use, socialization. Yes. And this is where this whole idea of gender roles. Yes. Yeah. I know that within the context now we live in, the word gender has become really amorphous you know? mm-hmm. and all that. But gender simply means, I think it would have been better of using the word sex, which is really the biological aspects of it. But then again, you know, some people are not comfortable with that. But it's a gender roles, which simply means that if you're a man, this is how you should behave. If you're a woman, this is how you should behave. And because even we as women have been told that the kitchen is a woman's place, mm-hmm. the onion cutting is a woman. Mm-hmm. So even when we see a man doing those, we're like, no, this is a something wrong, like mm-hmm. you rightly said. And do. It's just so something, mate. Exactly. My we all need a deconstruction because what is wrong with a man cooking? And so some men cook I, better than some women. I agree. Some men can take care of a baby. A man cannot, by the current world we live in, maybe it's going to be happening soon, carry a baby for nine months. But men can carry babies on their back. Men bath babies. So these are all things that if we do together and share these gender roles and realize that there's nothing wrong with, it's about the value we place on the work being done. Like you rightly said, the girls by 11 can do so much, the boys maybe not. But we still place more value on the little that the boy does mm. and not the so many other things that the girl mm-hmm. does. Yeah. Let me give you a quick example. Kenya has your first woman chief justice. Yeah, she has joined a long list of women across Africa. My research shows that Africa has produced more women chief justices and presidents of constitutional courts than any else, any other continent. But how often do we know this? How often do we think about this? Mm. Your chief justice has been in, in office or less going on two years now. Mm. And I can tell you, based, I have done the study yet i'm going to do it based on the research i did in 2015 which we explained listen at, the, at that time the number of women who had been in chief justice positions you find that the women were equally qualified and sometimes more qualified than their male predecessors so if we look at the legacy of any other chief justice and we were to compare let's look at the current work that has been done by chief justice Marta Kome in less than two years what she's been able to achieve and compare that and not to say that we are comparing for the sake of pointing fingers, but we are comparing for the sake of saying that when a woman is in a position of leadership and she is contributing to transforming systems, whether in this case justice or judicial systems, we have to look at the record, recognize, celebrate, and acknowledge the fact that the woman in leadership is changing systems for the good and not pick at banal things that are just for the sake of sensationalizing women in leadership have a right to be there the record has shown that they've done a good job in places Mm -hmm. Uh, the the research has shown that when there are more women on boards the boards do better so once again i am not saying that we should engage in a game of comparison but it's a game of recognizing acknowledging and giving credit where credit is due it's quantifying the outcomes and the outputs now what needs to be done in these four countries that you conducted this research you said um for example let's just looking at kenya in terms of women in positions of leadership in the judiciary yeah yeah it's almost coming to 50 percent in the academia is below that in uh, in the bar it's below that what needs to be done to increase that yeah it's a lot so once again we 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 uh, break the recommendations into different levels so once again the institutional level the, the the structural level and the individual level so just to your point some women do still need leadership training mm. it's all about the socialization we're socialized from the very get-go that leadership is for men some women also shy away from leadership because when a woman gets into leadership you get all sorts of things thrown at you so some people say it's just not me i don't have the time so that individual aspect has to be we have to also invest 
in training. We have to invest in programs, for example, for those in academia. It's a publish or perish. So if women are not getting the opportunities to publish because of the double burden care of childcare and not just childcare, adult care, communal care, then they don't have the time. So how do we get more fellowships for women to be able to, to publish? In the, in the bar, the law society would also have to have a conversation about, think about it, if about 40% of the people of the bar are women. But when it comes to elections, a woman doesn't rise up. What is the problem? And it, it's a national thing, right? Even in politics. Mm. What is, once again, the ways in which we women have to deconstruct our minds and support women? And also men have to deconstruct their minds to know that a woman can equally be a leader. And why are women not contesting for these positions? We need to look at those. So, you know, the question that comes to my mind is, yet we still find women being elected. Mm. What is it about these women and why is it that they get elected? The ones that get elected. Yes, against this background uh, of, of a clear bias. Mm. What do they do? Mm. What is it about them? Yeah. So within the legal profession, if I'm just looking at that, a Kenya, it's only been one. So I'm going to have to figure out what made that exception outlier case. Yeah, the three um, uh, deputy uh, vice chairs society of the society we need to look at. So I would, my simple answer would be, the extrapolating from other factors is a lot of things, uh, other circumstances. The selection method is a timing, is an issue of the person, is an issue of the networks they have. And then it would, if we were to be to looking at politics, it's an issue of money. But in the case of this one, I think that would be my next research project. What is it about those <laughs> ones that uh-huh. got them there? <laughs> so can, thank you for that research you, you question. You can involve CT yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in that next research. Prof, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you very much for the work that you've done. Welcome. Come back again. Come back soon to the show. I will do. Thank you for making me feel so relaxed. Thank you. How about that? You made it to the end of today's podcast. You clearly ooze stamina. Guess what? Just hit subscribe at Standard Media Podcast, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Our podcasts drop daily. From me and the team, catch you next time. Bye-bye.